In the summer of 2005, I went on a backpacking trip to the Beartooth Mountains in Montana. Out of curiosity, has anyone ever been there? Beartooth Mountains, Montana? Yeah? A few. All right. Wonderful. It's a great place. It's a glorious mountain range. And myself and about six, I was a youth intern at my first church. And so I went with the youth pastor at the time. I was the intern. The youth pastor planned the trip. And then we brought six teenage guys with us to the Beartooth Mountains. And we hiked for a few days. We hiked in 12 miles and camped by this beautiful mountain lake. The water was like 33 degrees, but it wasn't too cold for us to jump off the cliffs that surrounded it. We just enjoyed this time immensely. It was beautiful. I mean, how many of you have been to a mountain range? Put your hand up nice and high. Okay, most of us have been to a mountain range. Beautiful sights. Just a beautiful time. My soul always feels refreshed and encouraged when I get out of the city and when I get near a mountain or an ocean. And this was an incredible time. We had great weather the entire trip until the morning that we were supposed to leave. We woke up the morning that we were supposed to hike out to rain, and our tents had let the rain through, and everything was soaked. So we woke up with everything drenched. Anyone been there before? You're camping, and of course, the night before you pack up, it's rainy, and so everything's wet, and there's dirt stuck to everything, and so you pack all of that up. So we packed up our campsite, and we're getting ready to have breakfast to give us nourishment and energy for our hike out, and the guy who was in charge of the food underestimated the amount of food that we needed, and so we had no breakfast food. So here we are with a 12-mile hike in front of us. It's still raining. All of our stuff is wet, and we have no food to give us energy to get off of this mountain, 12 miles in, with a bunch of, like, 14-year-olds. And uh, thankfully, I wasn't in charge, so I wasn't on the hook for any of this, but I wanted to see that we all lived. I mean, no one wants to lose a companion on a trip like that. So we packed everything up, and we started heading for our car, which was parked 12 miles from our campsite, up and down through mountain range, through mountain ranges. And as we did, this, this rain that had been coming down for the second half of the night turned into a mountaintop storm. I mean, it got dark. It started, started lightning and thundering, and it was fearful. This was a fearful experience, and one of the guys, one of the chaperones, youth leader on the trip, he used to play football for the U of M, and he's just a stacked guy, right? So he went on ahead, he got himself out, and then he came back, and one by one, he took people's packs and carried them out. We eventually all made it by God's grace. We made it out safely, but every one of us on that trip felt the fear of being on a mountain at the wrong time without the right resources. Am I on? Yeah, you can hear me? Great. All of us felt the fear of being on the mountain at the wrong time without the right resources. Our passage today brings us to the foot of two different mountains. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. The author of Hebrews sees these two mountains, he uses these two mountains to compare and contrast different aspects of God's glory and our response to God's glory. Let's read the passage together. It's in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. And if you could stand and follow along as I read it. It's on page 1009 in the Pew Bible if you don't have a Bible with you. And I encourage you to grab a Bible and get your eyes on it this morning. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, in the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on heaven, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Let me summarize this text for us before digging into it. Our big idea this morning is that in Christ, we no longer stand in fear of God at the foot of Mount Sinai. Rather, we celebrate and worship God with reverence and awe at the foot of Mount Zion. As a result of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, there's been a foundational shift in the way that you and I relate to God. A foundational shift from the Old Testament. You and I and the, the, the readers or the hearers of this book, of this sermon in Hebrews, these were first century Jewish Christians, there had been a foundational shift, shift for them and there's a foundational shift for you and I in the way that we relate to God. And that's what the author of Hebrews here is doing. He's trying to get these early Christians, these first century Christians, to understand that the way that they now relate to God is different than the way that the people of the Old Testament, that Israel in the Old Testament, related to God. And this is it. That in Christ, we no longer stand in fear of God at the foot of Mount Sinai. Rather, we celebrate and worship God with reverence and awe at the foot of Mount Sinai. Zion. And so let's dig into this a little bit and see why the author is comparing and contrasting these two different mountains. The first one, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is talked about here in verses 18 through 21. And to summarize it, Mount Sinai shows us the law. It shows us God giving his people law. It shows God's holiness. It shows mankind's sinfulness. And it shows that in the presence of God, we ought to tremble with fear. Look at verse 18 through 21. For you have not come to what may be touched. And this is a reference to Mount Sinai. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. In fact, let's go there for a moment and get the Old Testament picture of what's happening here in the New Testament. Exodus chapter 19. That's on page 60 in the Pew Bible. Actually, 61. We'll pick it up at verse 16. So this is Israel, the people of God, after they've been let out of, e- led out of Egypt. They are in the wilderness, and God is setting up how they are to function in the wilderness. Pick it up at Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightning and thick clouds on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. 
the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to any and look to the Lord, unless they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you yourself have warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, and flip back to Hebrews chapter 12. That's what's being summarized here in Hebrews chapter 12. The author, the preacher of Hebrews, is bringing them back to this story that they all know well. They, they all knew the story of Israel being at the foot of Mount Sinai and God giving them the law. He summarizes it, verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched. Now, this, what, what he's saying here, this mountain may, not be, may be touched. It's a physical, actual mountain. But if you notice in the context, he's saying if anyone touches it, they will die. So the author of Hebrews is saying Mount Sinai is a physical, actual mountain. It's a tangible place that you can touch. However, when God's glory came upon it, if you touched it, if you crossed the territory or the the boundary that God set up around it, you would die. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearer beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Can you imagine that? They're hearing the voice of God and, and they're, they're so filled with fear and terror that they're asking this voice to stop. They want distance. They say, Moses, would you go into that fearful presence because if we get near it, we will surely die. For if they could not endure the order that was given, verse 20, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So Mount Sinai is giving us this picture of the holiness of God, of the otherness of God. It's it's a picture of God giving his people the law. He gives us the Ten Commandments and he gives us a ton of other laws to follow here on Mount Sinai. It's a picture of God's holiness and mankind's unholiness, our unworthiness. To borrow an analogy from another pastor to help us understand God's holiness that we see here on Mount Sinai, I want you to think about the sun. Not Jesus the sun, but the sun that's in the sky, the sun that is shining brightly down this morning, making this building extremely hot and sweaty. Think about that sun. The sun is glorious. The sun is a great thing. The sun gives life. If the sun didn't shine down on planet Earth, we would not have life. Amen? Do you enjoy the sun? We're heading into shorter days where the sun is out less and less. And I was just thinking this morning as I was sitting around at 6.30, it was still dark. Oh, how I miss the sun. The sun is good. It's glorious. At 93 miles, million miles away from us though, right? The sun is 93 million miles away from us and it's glorious. It's good. It's necessary. It gives us life. If we get closer to the sun, what would happen? We'd burn up, right? The the safe distance for us to be from the sun is 93 million miles away. But if we start, if we think we can get closer to the sun, we'll burn up, we'll be disintegrated. And much in the same way, God is like the sun. 
The sun's not bad because it will burn us if we get too hot, to, if we get too close to it, right? If we get too close to the sun, the sun burns us. Does that make the sun bad? Do you sit around blaming the sun for being so hot? Do you sit around shaking your fist at the sun for, for being so hot that you can't get closer to it? No. But yet, sometimes people think, well, God is so holy and glorious, and how dare he be so powerful that he can't be in the midst of sin? The point is that God is just different than us. In the same way that the sun is different than us, God is different than us. It doesn't make God bad that, that in his presence we would be destroyed. It shows us, or it should show us, his glory, his holiness, his otherness. Like the sun destroys us if we get too close, God's presence is hot and holy and other. And if we get too close to God, if we come into the presence of God with sin, which we all have, we deserve to be destroyed. We're too close. We're too close to this God who is different than us. You can think about us like the moon. I mean, we are created in the image of God, right? So we have these godly characteristics and we have this, this, this um, image of God that we have been created with to, to cast out into the world. But you can think of us like the moon. We're merely reflecting the glory of God. We are different than him. He is holy. He is glorious. He is other. We're created in his image to reflect his glory, but we aren't his glory. We can't come into his presence, into his holiness, without a mediator. That's what we're seeing on Mount Sinai. God's presence, God's glory, God's holiness is upon this mountain. And there's lightning and there's thunder and there's terror. God picks a mediator, Moses, to come into his presence. And God loves his people. Just because he's other than us, because he's holier than us, because we would be burnt in his presence with sin doesn't make him bad and it doesn't make him unloving. It's just the reality of the situation. We have a God who has created all things and he is different than you and I. And we have no right to enter his presence unless he makes a provision for us to enter his presence. And so that's what he does here in the Old Testament. On Mount Sinai, he makes a provision for God's people to enter his presence. He gives them the Old Testament law. He gives them the law to preserve his people and allow them to exist within his presence or that his presence could exist among them in the nation of Israel. The temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the law of the Lord, that's what Exodus goes on to explain for us, the different law that God gave. His law wasn't a punishment for his people. As we see his presence here in this portion of Hebrews on Mount Sinai, when he gives the law, it's not a punishment for his people. It's a code of conduct helping them to understand how to live in the midst of his holiness. It's saying, here's the safe distance. Here's the way that you function around God who is different than you, that if you come into his presence wrongly, you will be destroyed. It'll be like being on a mountain when a storm comes. So here's some boundaries. Here's the way to live your life. 613 laws in total in the Old Testament God gave his people. They can be broken into three categories. The moral law, which is behaviors for the people. It's kind of like person-to-person laws. This is how you should treat one another. This is how you should live with one another. And then there's the civil law. This is the laws of the nation. This is how you should govern yourself. This is how you ought to operate with other nations. This is the rules that should govern your nation. And then ceremonial laws are behaviors for the priests. 
and the people, but primarily the priests. This is how you are to worship. This is what you're to do on the Day of Atonement. This is how you come into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is. This is what you're not to do in the presence of God. God gave them 613 laws total to help them thrive. In this, the law was a grace from God to help them thrive, to show them God's otherness, to show them God's holiness, that, that our forefathers would understand the holiness of God because he had set up these parameters. And he gave these laws to them to show their need for a savior. Was Israel capable of fulfilling the 613 laws? No, they weren't. Time and time and time again, they failed. They broke the law. And so this law given by God that reflects his holiness, his otherness, the, the separateness of him from us, they were given to his people to help them function and thrive and flourish. They were also given to his people to help them understand that they are incapable of living holy, righteous lives. Here's the law. We try and do the law. We try and uphold the rules and we can't do it. We fall short. We fall short. We fall short. Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, and here, the author of Hebrews brings it back up. It's here to show us our dependence, our need, our brokenness. It's meant to show us that before the holy other God, we are small. You are small, church. You're not all that important. You're not all that great. You're not all that good in and of yourself. I mean, God's presence on this mountain shook the mountain. If anyone comes across the line, they will die in the presence of God. And so this, this passage here is to help us understand that in God's presence, we are small. We are nothing. The only reason that we breathe and live and exist is because God decided to breathe life into motion. He decided that you would exist on this earth, in this time frame, for his glory and for his good. So Mount Sinai is here to remind us of that, that before the presence of the Holy Lord, we have no right to exist. We have no no power to go into his presence on our own. We all deserve death. We are all doomed by our disobedience to God. But look again at verse 18. He says, For you have not come, you have not come to this mountain, That's what Mount Sinai represented, God's law, God's rule, God's holiness, and our inability to be in his presence, our inability to uphold his law. That's what Sinai's here for. That's the reality of the God that we serve. But look at this key word, not. You have not come. You have not come to what may be touched, to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and to a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Mount Sinai, the mountain of law, the mountain of God's holiness, the mountain of God's unapproachability. You have not come to that church. That's not the place that we live in our time of redemptive history. We have not come to Mount Sinai. Where have we come? Look at verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable 
angels and festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to Mount Zion, church, to the grace of God, to the undeserved favor of God, to the mercy of God, where he hasn't expected us to be able to uphold his law or to fulfill his law. And he knows that we can't be in his presence, so he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live the life that we're incapable of living, a perfect life, upholding all of the law, and to enter his presence on our behalf. You and I have not come to Mount Sinai. The law, the terror, the fear of the Lord We've come to Mount Zion, the mountain of grace, the mountain of forgiveness, the mountain where Jesus shed his blood as the all-sufficient sacrifice, making a way for you and I to enter God's very presence with confidence, boldness, reverence, and awe. Think about it. Think about the contrast here. Mount Sinai, this, this God who's righteous and holy and other, and think about your own sin for a minute. Think about the deception in your heart. Think about your inconsistencies. Think about the way that you contribute to the injustices of the world. Some intentionally, some unintentionally. Think about your, your disobedience. Think about all of these things in you that's broken and you know it's broken. And think about God, this holy other, perfect being, radiating light and power. You don't stand a chance in his presence and yet this passage is telling us that we can now walk into his presence with confidence, no fear, no shame, because of what Jesus has done. Church, we have come to Mount Zion. We don't live at the foot of Mount Sinai. We live at the foot of Mount Zion. Zion was a hill in Jerusalem, the city of God. And, and they put the temple there, and the Ark of the Covenant was on Mount Zion. And so this became some synonymous. Mount Zion, for the, for the first readers, the first century Christians and the Old Testament Christians, Mount Zion was representative to them or synonymous with heavenly glory, with God's presence. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, you've come into the presence of God. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come there, not to Mount Zion. Sinai, and look at the five benefits that he gives us at Mount Zion. So you have come to Mount Zion, the presence of the living God, that's what it represents, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings. There were angels at Mount Sinai, and they were there to hold the people back so that they wouldn't be destroyed. At Mount Zion, there's also angels gathered, but are they there holding us back so that we wouldn't be destroyed? No, they're in festal gathering. This is a celebration. There's a celestial party happening at Mount Zion that we get swept up into. There's an angel party happening right now because of what Jesus has done, and we have come to that angel party. I don't even know what that looks like or means. But that's amazing, right? God's mighty warrior angels aren't trying to keep us out of God's presence. In fact, they're there ushering in and saying, would you join the party? Would you join the celebration? All has been forgiven, and we are here to celebrate innumerable angels in festal gatherings. That's our reality, church. Verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly of the firstborn. This is the gathering of Christians for, from 
all time. Jesus was the firstborn of God, and now us, if we're in Christ, we are, we are given the firstborn status. We are given the inheritance of the firstborn. And so the author of Hebrews here is saying that in Christ, we've come to Mount Zion, to this angel party, and also to the gathering of the universal church of all Christians of all time, of all cultures, of all languages, who have trusted Jesus Christ. We, the church, are assembled there's a celestial party going on and this assembly of the church throughout history gathering to worship Jesus. We've come to God the judge and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, verse 23, and to God the judge of all. That's a benefit for us in Christ. When we come to Mount Zion, we come to God, the judge of all, the God who judged Jesus in our place so that we wouldn't have to bear the weight of his righteous wrath against our sin. Amen, church? As we come to Jesus, we have no need to fear God's righteous judgment of us because he looks at you and he says, forgiven. Your judgment is that as holy, righteous, without blemish. That's how God judges us in Jesus Christ. It's not done yet. There's three benefits. The angel party, the the assembly of the firstborn, God the judge, the one who judges us as righteous, and then to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Fourth benefit of coming to Mount Zion is that we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What is this? Again, this is similar to the universal church, but it's bringing it down to more of a macro level. The, the um, assembly of the firstborn is kind of this big picture of all believers of all time. And then when he says that you have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, it's bringing it down to a macro, macro level. That means those of you who has lo- have lost loved ones, who had faith in Jesus Christ, it's reminding you that you will be with them again, worshiping your Father together. Those of you who, who have lost loved ones to death, if they're in Christ, they're fully alive. You'll see them again. They are the righteous made perfect, and you will join them in the great assembly someday, worshiping God the Father. How good is Mount Zion! And then lastly, he says, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the covenant in the Old Testament. Moses was the representative who went up on Mount Sinai and got the law. And it even says that Moses trembled with fear. He went as a representative for the people, as a mediator between man and God. And he received the Old Testament covenant, which was law and rule. Jesus now is the mediator, the one who goes between God and man on our behalf, and he's the mediator of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And to the sprinkled blood of Jesus, which speaks speaks a better word than Abel. That's where we've come, church, to God's mercy and his grace, not to his law and his wrath. Both of those are, are signs of God's glory and his righteousness, They're different aspects of who he is, but because of Jesus, we've come to Mount Zion. We can enter his presence with boldness, with confidence, not fearing rejection. So now what? 
the writer of Hebrews goes on to give us some things to do. This is true. We've come to Mount Zion, so what does that mean? He gives us a warning. Verse 25, he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse Jesus' testimony. His blood cries out. His blood speaks. As it says in verse 24, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood spoke out judgment. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, Abel's blood spoke out its beginning. That the unraveling of sin and the impact of sin in the world is beginning as brother killed brother in jealousy. Abel's blood spilled out and it cried out that the dysfunction and the discord and the division of sin is beginning. Jesus' blood screams out, it's being healed. It's being mended. It's being put back together. The old covenant, the one of law, the one of righteousness, the one of of God's holy otherness. Jesus has spilled his blood as the all-sufficient sacrifice to deal with that. So now we can embrace this new covenant. Jesus' blood cries out forgiveness. The author of Hebrews tells us, don't refuse that testimony. Church, you have a choice. Do you receive the blood of Jesus or do you reject it? That's the second thing that he's saying here. Don't refuse him who is speaking. God is speaking to us through his son Jesus. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So Jesus has come, he's walked among us on earth, and now he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and his blood speaks out forgiveness. And church, have you refused it? Have you rejected it? Does your lifestyle show that you've received the blood of Jesus Christ? Or does it show that you've rejected it? Do you continue to try to earn your salvation? Kind of rejecting the blood of Jesus. I mean, we take communion every week. We're going to do it in a minute here. As you drink that cup, church, would you remember that that represents Jesus' blood speaks that you are forgiven? Not that your devotional time, not that your church attendance, not that your volunteer service, not that your good works, those, those don't do anything. You're still small. You're still unholy. You're still unworthy in the presence of that fiery, hot, holy God who's completely other than us. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word, forgiveness, grace, mercy. And then he ties it up by telling us that we come before God, that we are to come before God. If we understand this, if we understand Mount Zion, we should come before God worshiping with joy, reverence, and awe. Think about this. We've come to Mount Zion, and what's happening at Mount Zion? In the presence of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. There's an angel party. There's an assembly of the universal church. There's God the judge saying, forgiven. There's the spirits of the righteous made perfect, those who have passed away before us, alive, worshiping God the Father, and Jesus, the mediator, the one who shed his blood on our behalf. If we understand that we stand at the foot of Mount Zion, how do we not worship God with joy, with reverence, with thankfulness, with humble hearts, maybe on our knees sometimes, and with awe? Like when you stand at a beautiful mountain. When I was at the Beartooth Mountains before the storm came, beautiful awe. 
And then when the storm came upon us, there was still awe, but it was a fearful awe. I had to tuck and run, look for cover, and get out of there as quick as I could. This passage is telling us we've come to Mount Zion where God can be approached, where God can be enjoyed, where we can worship God with joy, with reverence, and with awe, not with fear, not with hiding, not with worry of being struck down if we don't do things properly. Amen, church? This is what this passage is telling us, that we can come into the presence of God who is a consuming fire. He's still a consuming fire. But if we're in Christ, that fire burns off what's bad in us and refines us and makes us holy and other more and more like God. It doesn't destroy us. And so church, this morning as we respond with communion, would you come to Mount Zion? Would you remember that in Christ you're at Mount Zion? That in Christ we no longer stand in fear at the foot of Mount Sinai. Rather, we celebrate and worship God with reverence and awe at the foot of Mount Zion. And as you come forward, as you visit the station in the back, as you take the cup, would you remember that Jesus' blood speaks out forgiveness, new covenant, grace, mercy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you've done on our behalf. I thank you for this time in history that we get to live in where we don't have to face you on Mount Sinai, but we get to enjoy you at Mount Zion. Lord, I pray now that as we respond that we would feel the grace and mercy of God, that we would join in with the angel celebration, the assembly of the firstborn, that we would be humbled before the God who's judges righteous, that we would participate with the spirits made righteous, <coughs> and that we would look to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Thank you for what you've done on our behalf. May you nourish our souls now with the communion elements. In Jesus' name, amen.